You know, I, I rise today to speak to you about the most certain historical fact in the ancient world. Now, I know that might surprise you because there are many who have attacked what I'm about to talk to you about as either from the inside the church saying it's unnecessary, we don't have to believe these things anymore, we come from a scientific era where we know it's impossible once a man's brain has stopped, his heart has stopped, that he's laid in a tomb, that he's rolled over, the stone is rolled over in front of the grave, the guards are posted, the seal of Caesar is placed there on the stone, it, and he is wrapped in pounds and pounds and pounds of spice and cloth to preserve him. We know now that we are scientific and we live in a scientific age. It is sheer fairy tale that that man would rise from the dead. We live in an age where many inside the church attack the doctrine of the resurrection, even more so than the world. But I rise to tell you, this is the most verified fact in ancient history. And there are several reasons. I chose the account of Luke's telling of the resurrection for a very particular reason. Because he, unlike the other authors, emphasizes the fact that it is women who find the tomb of the Lord empty. It's women. Now, I'm not a chauvinist. And neither were they chauvinists. But in the ancient world, if you were going to create a fairy tale... And you were going to expect the civilized Roman world to believe it. You would not include women in the account. That would be foolish if it was a fairy tale. Luke not only includes them, he gives them the place of prominence. They're the first to see that the tomb is empty. If you were going to create a fairy tale, you would not make Peter the doubter. He would not make Peter the doubter. Because Peter is the right hand of the Lord. After his resurrection ascension, who is it that rises first to preach the gospel? It's Peter. Why would you make that your man who has doubt and has to go see it with his own eyes? If you and I were going to create a fairy tale, there are only four gospel accounts of this event. Can we not get four people in the same room to record the story exactly the same? Emphasizing the same details. Emphasizing the same wording. Why couldn't we do that? See, you might have read those accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you might have thought, well, there's some differences here. There's variation here. That gives me doubt. No, that should give you great courage. If they came out with a story with the exact same wording and the exact same details, then we might, and by the way, there are many stories like that in the ancient world where people were certain to get all the facts on the same uh, line and wave and get every detail that they wanted to emphasize exactly right in their fashion. And they are fairy tales. They are myths. But this is not one of them. I mean, the four men entrusted with recording this great story for us, you mean to tell me we can't get them to agree and tell us the same facts? Why? All the variation. And the variations do not contradict one another. That's strange. That's strange. Beyond that. Beyond that. The Lord did not appear to one or two. He appears first to Mary. Then... He appears to His disciples. Then He appears to other disciples on the road to Emmaus. Then He appears over a period of 40 days to over, as Paul says, 500. If you're going to create a fairy tale, I'm just, if you're going to create a myth, I'm just asking, playing devil's advocate, you didn't wait hundreds of years to create it. This was there in Josephus' day. These claims were verified by the Jewish historians, the Roman historians, and the Christian historians in the generation of the Lord, not hundreds of years later. If you were going to create a fairy tale, why would you propose that there's over 500 people who can verify it, that they saw Him with their eyes? It's just too much. 
No, it would be much more likely that you'd say, well, he appeared to us in the upper room. And we saw him. Well, where is he? Well, he's gone back to heaven. You can't see him anymore. But he did it. No. No. That's not at all what happened. All these facts, all these pictures, and they're all verified by hundreds, not one or two. I got a greater proof. I got a greater proof. If it is a myth, it's easy to dispel. And there's plenty in that day who would have wanted to see it dispelled, done away with. You mean to tell me that the Pharisees and the high priest would stand idly by while the Jewish world is turned upside down and they lose their power? People stop attending their preaching and start attending the preaching of Peter and James and John and Paul. They're just going to stand by. Why? If it's not true, it took one act to disprove it. Everyone knew where he was laid. If his body's there, lay it in state and invite the whole world to come and see him. Now the Jewish historians have to admit we can't find his body. And they have, they're left because they're skeptics to say with the Romans, well, maybe somebody stole it. That's likely, isn't it? Roman guard standing in guard of it with the seal of Caesar, which, by the way, if broken against his word, meant certain and immediate death. That's very likely that some women... And a couple of fishermen went down to these train guards and said, Hey, we're, we're going to give you a little money, bribe you, pay you off, and we'd like to get his body and hide it. That means the guards would sign their death warrant, and the men who, and the women who did it would sign their death warrant. That's not very likely. What is more likely is the report the guards gave, which is, We don't know what happened. We were standing there and then there was this bright light. When we came to and looked around, the stone was moved and he was gone. If this wasn't true, surely the Pharisees and the high priests would have found his body and produced it for everyone to see. And if not them, certainly Caesar. I mean, Caesar, Caesar was not just king. He was God in the flesh in his mind and the mind of the Romans. And there was one rival to Caesar in his day. And it was Jesus Christ. And if Caesar, losing control of the Middle East, wanted to stop that, which we know he did. Why? Because the, this Caesar and Caesars after him began to persecute the way and kill people by the hundreds and the thousands, it would have been much simpler, much less bloody, and much more popular to bring the body out and say, here lies Jesus. He's a liar and a lunatic. Don't believe him. But that's not what happened. No, Josephus, Pliny, and the many other historians say, all we're left to say is we don't have an explanation. We don't want to believe what the Christians are saying. But we're left with no evidence to stop it. But there's a greater line than this. There's a greater line of evidence than this. Having turned to Romans 4, we're getting there. This is the introduction. There's a greater line of evidence. And the greater line of evidence is recorded for us in the book of Acts. Peter rises on Pentecost. He preaches a great sermon. We have the cliff notes. Don't think Peter preached for five minutes. Okay, we have the highlights of his sermon, not word for word. Okay? Acts 2, verse 32 Jesus standing in front of a bunch of Jews, I mean, Peter standing in front of a bunch of Jewish gatherers, says, This Jesus, this Jesus 
God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses. Witnesses. We are willing to die for what you're saying. For what we're saying. We're willing to die for it. They weren't playing around. They used a word that means die. The word witness recorded for us, which we equate with talking, they also talked, but they were willing to have themselves killed, martyreo. They, they were willing to martyr themselves for this. That, not that Jesus was a good man, not that he was a prophet, not that he lived a good life and died a sad death, but they were willing to die because they believed him to be the Son of God, and the evidence of that, beyond any Doubt was the resurrection. This Jesus God raised up from the dead and we're willing to die for it. That's what Peter said in his first sermon. Chapter 3. Maybe maybe there's just an anomaly in his preaching in chapter 2. In chapter 3, he preaches a sermon. He raises, he raises a man. He heals a man. And then he gives a short defense for his action 3 verse 14 but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom god raised from the dead verse 26 god having raised up his servant jesus sent him to you first to bless you by turning everyone from their wickedness Chapter 4, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. How do we know? Because, look up previous in verse 10. Let it be known to all of you that, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom was crucified, whom God raised from the dead. The basis of his ministry was that God was raised Jesus from the dead. Chapter 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Stephen, in chapter 7, verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Resurrection has happened. We have Luke's recording of, of Acts 9, Paul's conversion, where he's face to face with a real, literal Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so we have the authority of these witnesses who rose up and they preached over and over again the, re the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 10, verse 39. They put him, they put Jesus to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead so that you don't think. And so they wanted people to know so you, they wouldn't think we're having some kind of weird hallucination and vi vision. We ate with him, we drank with him, and he commanded us to preach. They're giving evidence over and over and over again. And so we have... That was Paul's witness. We have Paul witnessing throughout the Scripture. But look at Acts 13. One of Paul's great defenses in front of the council. He preaches their history to them. I always loved that. He goes back and he roots Christianity in the great history of the Old Covenant. He says this isn't new totally. It's it's. Another step, but it's not totally new. It's building off the platform of the Old Covenant. And look what he says in Acts 13, verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. He's quoted Psalm 16. 
Psalm 16, verse 10 and 35. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Now he's saying David saw corruption. But, verse 37, he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by, every, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He stood in front of the Jews and preached the resurrection. He gave witness to the resurrection. His whole ministry was the same. If we went through here, we would see over and over again the same thing. Acts 17. Paul again rising up in a different audience. He's not in front of Jews now. He's in front of Gentiles. He's at the Areopagus. The most wise and learned men of their day. It would be like going to Harvard or going to Oxford in England. And giving a defense. And Jesus is what he's defending. And look what he says. Verse 30. Acts 17 verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So in front of the most learned men of his day, by the way, resurrection accounts are not common. Don't let anyone fool you. It's not as if this was some story beside a lot of other stories in that day where everybody thought their leader was being raised from the dead. They are the only ones claiming this. And I would say, as far as I know, in major world religions, there may be some cultic groups out there who are taking the Christian truth and twisting and perverting it. But major world religions don't make this claim. The Muslims don't make this claim. Their leader, Muhammad, was a prophet. He's not God in the flesh and he's dead. They have a tomb. They go see him often. Their, Buddhism does not make this claim. Oh, they, they make the claim in reincarnation and life forever in Hinduism. But it's not the same claim. It's not the same claim. This, this is unique to Christianity. And so I say to you, the proof, the burden of proof is on anyone who doubts the resurrection. Not on us who believe in it. The burden of proof is on the world to say it's not true. It changed the way these men lived their lives. You say, what's so significant about that? Well, these are men who lived, breathed, ate, drank, slept the old covenant. And they've turned their back on it. It's their whole life. And they've turned their back on it to preach that Christ was raised from the dead. They're at fear of death. All of them die. All of them are murdered. All of them are martyred. All of them are killed. After James is killed in Jerusalem, and they've witnessed this, if this is a myth that they're making up, some vision they fancied in their own minds, don't you think they would have got together and said, the gig's up, they're mad, let's say it's not true. Something compelled them to keep preaching this as true. Keep preaching it as true. And not just them. Not just them. 2,000 years has passed. And this morning will be the high day of attendance in the Christian church. And in most pulpits, the gospel will be proclaimed and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years later. Archaeologists have dug and searched and created all types of things to try to disprove it. And it's never been disproven. Why? Because it's true. Jesus Christ was crucified... Buried, and on the third day, He was raised. Not His spirit. His entire body was raised to new life. Eternal life. Having died, He could die no more. And He walked out of that grave by the power of God through the Holy Spirit to proclaim to everyone who needed to hear, I am who I am. 
I'm the Son of God. And I told you that if you tore down this temple, in three days I would raise it up again. Touch the nail prints in my hand and stick your hand in my side. Have I not kept my word? Listen, if you're here doubting your faith, don't be harassed and don't be confused. You are in the stream of the most sane, the most learned, and the most consistent faith in world history. Why? Because it is the true faith. There is none like it. There is none like this faith which God has given from above so that you might believe in His Son. It doesn't end there. If we would be patient and sit and have lunch together, we would go through the Old and New Testament and this would be beyond your imagination. The Old Testament speaks of His resurrection too. Job believed in resurrection. Because he said when he burst forth on that glorious day, I will see him with my eyes. The Hebrew is very clear. He's not talking about some spiritual vision. He's talking about seeing him physically. Job believed in the resurrection. Abraham believed in the resurrection. Hebrews tells us that in Genesis 22, he took his son as he was commanded up the mountain. And when he was asked by the boy probably 12, 13 years old by this time, Isaac, his one and only son. Now, he had an older son, but this was the promised child through whom God had said through your loins there will be one who will be a blessing not just to you but to all the nations. This is him standing beside him with a torch and with wood and a knife in Abraham's sheath. And as they climbed that rugged trail, having left their servants behind, Isaac asked a very simple question. Father, we have a torch. We have wood. We have a knife. See, he had been to many, many sacrifices. He knew you slip from ear to ear And the offering bleeds out. All the blood of the offering bleeds out. And then you light that offering, having died, and burn it as a fragrant offering before the Lord. He knew what was coming. We have a torch. We have wood. We have a knife. Father, Where is the sacrifice? Abraham believed in a resurrection. Why? Because he knew God had told him, your son is the sacrifice. I promised I would give him to you, and now I'm going to take him in a sacrifice. You offer him to me. But he doesn't tell his son that. He doesn't say, well, son, uh, I'm going to kill you. And then I'm going to burn you. And I'm going to go home to your mother. He says, the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice. And they went on up and he laid his son on the off table with the wood underneath him. And he lifted up in faith the knife. And before it could come down, Christ grabbed his arm. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate Christ, grabbed his arm and said, I've seen your faith. I've seen the evidence of your faith. That you would give up your own son. Look into the thorn bushes. And when they looked, there was a ram. Now, Hebrews tells us that Abraham went on that mountain, laid his son on that offering, lifted that knife up, not saying, well, I guess God changed his mind. He's going to kill my son. That's going to be the end of that. But rather, Hebrews tells us he did that in faith 
believing that God would even raise His Son from the dead. How would He get an idea like that? Because He believed the Gospel. And He was looking for the day when Christ would come. He didn't know all the details, but He knew enough. He knew enough to have faith in God and Christ. Not just God, but in Christ. And so He believed in a resurrection. He believed it. So we could go from Genesis through Revelation and you would find plenty of evidence. But I want to settle on one verse. Just one small verse. At the end of a chapter. A bridge verse. It takes us from chapter 4 to chapter 5. And for context, I'm going to read a couple of other verses, but verse 25 is the text. Talking about this man Abraham and his faith, Paul says that's why his faith, Abraham's, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Here it is. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. I think I've given enough evidence, and there's plenty more I could bring out. But why does the resurrection matter to me? And why does it matter to you? And why should we be here talking about it 2,000 years later? This is why. Unless God raised Him from the dead, you and I would have no hope. You and I would be living a fruitless, meaningless existence. It would be as the world says. We live but for a little while. Eat, drink, and be merry. For when you die, it's over. Like feathers in the wind are our days. So the world would tell us. Once they go, they can't come back. And when you reach the end of the feathers, there are no more. Once the last feather, that last day, blows into the wind, you cease to exist. That's what the world would have us believe. We got here by chance. We're leaving one day by chance. And there's nothing else. But I tell you, based on the authority of God's Word. That's a lie. And they need to prove it. I don't have to because my God says that there is an eternity. And your whole eternity hangs on the fact that He raised His Son from the dead. Let me show you why. This often is used as two things. Split. This is not two things in this verse who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see that? Often preachers take this text and make it two points. This is a one-point sermon. You like that, don't you? Somehow you fancy you'll get out early if it's one point. It's not two points. It's not two things. It's not that his death accomplished something and his resurrection accomplished something. It's that this unit, His death, burial, and resurrection, accomplished everything. And if you lose one, you lose it all. If He died for our trespasses, and He was buried, and that's it. That's it. Let's shut the book. Let's go home. And let's live life. If... He lived to be a grand old age of 100 or 105 or 110 or 120. And he just died. And God then miraculously raised him from the dead. Then let's shut the book and go home. Stop coming to places like this. Stop talking about him. You have to have the death and the resurrection. You have to have them to have anything. If you take one away, you take it all away. You can't be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection. 
That's a farce. That's a lie. Anyone who tells you that is not a believer. You say, well, that's harsh for you to say that. No, I'm just telling you. Anyone who does not believe in the resurrection of Christ is not a Christian. They may be a moral person, but they're not Christian. The resurrection is essential. Why? Because, as the, first, as, as the verse tells us, we are sinners. You say, where does it say that? He delivered him up for our trespasses. You and I are sinners. You and I are sinners. Psalm 51 says that in iniquity we were born. From the very beginning our hearts were sinful. From the first conceiving moments when we were being knitted together in our mother's womb, in the utter darkness of her womb, we were rebels against God's will. We didn't one day wake up at 5 or 6 or 8 or 10 or 20 and say, you know, I just don't like obedience and I just don't like God. I'm going to go my way. No. From the moment the sperm met the egg and the two became one, you were a sinner. What's the big deal about that? Because God is not a sinner. God is holy. He is set apart. He is utterly different than you and me. He is eternal. He is everlasting. He had no beginning and no end. He is righteous. Which means everything He does is right and every person that comes into His presence must be right. Or He will not have them. And what I'm telling you is, is sin is not primarily and first order a choice. Sin is a, is a being. It is a life. It is you. And it is me. See, some of you, all of your life, you've thought sin is just bad things I do. No. No, that's not at all it. If that was it, we would just teach you some laws. Matter of fact, the Jewish law would be great because God gave it. 600 plus regulations. Let's do those things. And if we ever get to where we can do those things, we're not sinners anymore. That, that, that's the, the problem of it. Sin isn't a choice primarily and first order. That's the second thing. But the primary thing is sin is who you are. It's who I am. That makes you uncomfortable. I know. You look at your baby. I got a nine-month-old. And you look into those faces and we talk about innocence. And there's a way in, sin, in a sense that's true. They are innocent in the ways of the world. They don't know a lot of the things we know, they have not experienced the heartache and the pain that we experience. I mean, my child cries, you go pick her up, she smiles. She's happy in that way she's innocent. She doesn't know the world is bad. She thinks the world's good because she's being raised by parents who love her and provide for her. In that way, yes, she's innocent, but my child is guilty before the throne of God in her nature. She is a sinner. And so is yours. So is your child. And so are you. And you can't come before God in that condition. Hebrews 12 says, Our God is a consuming fire. He will consume you if you come in front of Him with sin. He spent the whole of the Old Covenant proving it and the New Covenant proving it. How, do, how did He prove it? Well, Aaron's sons made the mistake of thinking they could come into the presence of God, how they chose. They came and they went out toast. I don't mean that lightly. I mean that literally. They were burnt, seared to the bone. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. And you don't come to Him on your terms. And you don't come to Him as a sinner saying, God will set me just as I am. No, He won't. He won't accept you. Just who you are. His wrath is being kindled against the ungodly. And that's all of us who are outside of Christ every day. And so, this verse tells us that we are sinners. We are sinners. And we are hopeless to change our condition. You can't change your nature. You were born with it. 
So some of you are on the course of moral improvement. You're trying to be a better you. You're trying to, you're trying to impress. You're trying to, you know, get in the good graces of God by good deeds. And everything you do is a filthy rag in His presence. Everything you do, everything you say causes His wrath to grow greater and greater. So this verse, first of all, says we are sinners. And second of all, it says Christ is the answer. How does it say that? He, that's the main way it says it, He. He, or who, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The truth of that is beyond our small minds. The Bible clearly teaches us that Jesus Christ came from heaven. Philippians chapter 2 says, seated with God in the heavenly places, He took off His Shekinah glory. He did not take off any part of His being. He did not set aside any of His being, who He is. He rather set aside the glory that you and I could not see lest we be consumed. He set that aside and He came as a human. He was born of a virgin. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why did He do it? Because He didn't grasp, as Philippians 2 tells us, being God being in equality with God, being in that hidden Shekinah glory, being in the Holy of Holies. He did not grasp that, but rather he relinquished relinquished the privilege while keeping every bit of his Godness and put himself in the form of a servant as a human. Why did he do it? Well, he says in Matthew 5, verse 17, he did it. Because the law must be fulfilled. God had made a covenant with His people. And they had not kept it. And God intended to keep it. And so He sent His Son, the only one who could, came in the flesh like His brothers in every way except without sin. And He obeyed the law perfectly. Some of it? No, all of it. The Ten Commandments? Yes, and all of the other 600 plus. He kept every law Perfectly. For the duration of his life. He never sinned. He grew up as a child. And he sat at the table. And he ate meals. That I'm sure were not perfect. And he sat with a dad. Who did sin. And a mother who lost her patience, I'm sure. And yet our Lord submitted Himself to them perfectly. He honored His father and mother, for this is right. He walked down the street and He sat at the table with thieves, with adulterers, with fornicators, with tax collectors, with Gentiles, with Samaritans. And yet, in their company, he was the perfect reflection of the character of God. Even when they thought they had him on a point of the law, it only turned out they were wrong and he was right. At 12 years old, he went in and sat with the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple. And they were debating and talking among themselves of the law. And he rose in their presence and talked. And they were amazed. Because he spoke as one with true authority. Not like one of them, but even at twelve, able to handle his father's word and his word perfectly. 
They had never seen anything like it. God made a covenant, an agreement that was established between two parties. And what it should have brought with it was a complete and utter curse because man failed, but God took the curse. At the end of his life, as I said earlier, he did not just go in old age and die. No. That same mother that he nourished and cared for all those years watched as her son was wrongly accused by his best friend, one of his best friends. Lied about. Drugged from kangaroo court to kangaroo court. And finally to stand before a spineless governor who, knowing he had done no wrong, bent to the will of the people who cried out, Crucify him! Can you imagine? The Lord of heaven and earth bowed down in humility. Not just to wash the feet of his friends, but to take their iniquity on himself. To take the despise and wrath of God on himself. To take the blow for them. To bear the curse so they would never bear the curse. After this charade of a trial, he was beaten beyond recognition. He was crowned with the thorns his father in the garden had said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles shall it bear. You ever wonder why they wove a crown of thorns? And stuck it on his head. They're mocking him. God had said that there would be one who would crush that curse. You think you can crush that curse, Jesus? You think you're the Son of God? Good for you. We'll weave you a crown with these thorns that your daddy promised. And we'll stick them on you. And they pierced down into the very inner part. To even touch maybe his skull. And he poured forth blood. He took the curse for you and for me. And then they beat Him. They lashed Him. And they robed Him and they stripped Him of His robe. And they put a cross bar on His back and said, Tote your own death instrument to the place assigned. He was so weak and so bruised and so battered, He, he couldn't even finish carrying it. Once arrived, they nailed him to that place. They impaled him on wood. And they hung him. And they placed a charge over his head. Written by that spineless governor. Jesus, King of the Jews. And he hung between heaven and earth on a tree. And God did not relent, but poured all His wrath on His Son. Because our God is a consuming fire. And the only hope for His chosen, the only hope for His church, the only hope for His bride, was that He would bear all the weight of the wrath of God. In short verse, He went to hell for you and for me on that cross. And having drank the last drop of the wrath of God, he lifted up his head and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he bowed his head. And all alone, with his mother watching and his closest friend, he took care to even assign his mother to someone. So that she wouldn't be all by herself. And then he said. It's finished. And he lifted his spirit to his father. And he died. Being a holy day coming. They took him down and buried him. In an unused tomb. Because he would be buried among the rich. Though he himself didn't even own a tomb. That was the word of the psalmist. And he was buried in that place. And they went home. They went home. Understand what the text said this morning in Luke. They went home. 
and observed the Sabbath. Because even though their faith was weak, it was not gone. They observed the Sabbath. Even as they mourned their Savior's death and their dream of a kingdom coming to the earth was crushed, they said, God is still God. We will worship. And on Sunday morning, they went to His tomb. And what they found was that Jesus Christ, having swallowed death and hell for them, had been raised up that they might have right standing before God. He, he who was delivered up for our trespasses was raised up for our justification. That simply means He was raised up that you and I might stand in Him before our Father right. So that the consuming fire won't consume us because it consumed Him on our behalf. Romans 3 had already given this as what God was doing. Romans 3 says, The righteousness of God, verse 21, has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, a, a covering and a removal of the wrath of God and of sin. By His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over sin. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Have faith in Jesus. So, He came, He lived Perfectly, righteously, actively righteous, keeping the law. And He died passively securing, gaining for us the righteousness of God. Because in that moment, He made Him who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, to be sin for us. So that we might in Him be the righteousness of God. What happened that day was what is known as impartation. Double impartation. His, our sin was laid on His body and consumed by the wrath of God and His righteousness was counted to us as our righteousness. It's not our righteousness, it's His righteousness. But His righteousness, which He had done perfectly, was laid in my account and your account as if, even as if we had done it. We never could do it. He did it, but it was counted to us. That's why the Scripture says it was counted to us for us, not just for Abraham, because he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Double impartation. My sin goes to him. His righteousness comes to me. Luther called it the great exchange. And it's a one-sided exchange in terms of who received a gift of salvation. Jesus didn't need saving. We are the only ones that receive salvation, but it's a two-sided gift in that we receive salvation. Listen, don't ever sell this short. And He received us. His church. He's not in heaven mad at you and me because He had to do this. He chose to do it willingly, to lay down His life so that we might be saved and He might receive the church. His glorious bride. And having purchased her, to never lose her again. She's His. We're His. So our joy should flow over in this day. 
What a Savior. What a husband who has never failed. He has washed us with the water of His Word and He has laid down His life that we might live. He was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our right standing before God. He lives. You ask me how I know He lives? Not because He lives in my heart. You ask me how I know He lives? Because He's seated at the right hand of His Father on the throne, the glorious King of heaven and earth. And He has poured out on us His Spirit. The proof of His resurrection is beyond argument. I know He lives. I pray you know He lives. And have you come here today needing that right standing? You say, what do I do? What do I do? Nothing. In the first sense, you do nothing because you can't do anything to change who you are. So you can't go live a better life and then come to Jesus. You can't try to earn it. You can't do anything to affect it. It's done. But in the second place, you call on Him in faith. Believe in Him and be saved. In the first case, you do nothing. You can't do any better than you are. You are a sinner. But in the second case, you call. You call. You you cry out. Save me. Please save me. And in doing that, what you're saying is there's nothing else. If He's not the Savior, there is no Savior. If He's not the Savior, I'm bound for hell. He's the treasure of my life. He's the treasure. I'm going to pray and the musicians are going to come and we're going to sing a benediction. A benediction that glorifies Him as the King of heaven and earth. So as I pray, would you guys move to your instruments? As I'm praying, I just ask that you would pray. Pray and thank Him. Pray and submit to Him call them.